So we're in Mark, um, in our Mark series, The Jesus Movement, and we're in this passage, which should be understood with the two kind of preceding passages that we preached on. Glenda preached on Jesus quietening the storm, if, if you're around for that, and then Eugene preached on where Jesus casts out the demons into the pigs, weirdest story ever. Well done, Eugene, for preaching on that. It is honestly the craziest, weirdest story. Um, so Eugene drew the short straw for that one. Um, but this, these two stories, which uh, um, the commentators say is like a Mark and Sandwich Mark likes to do these, and we'll see probably the most famous Mark and Sandwich when we get to ch chapter 8, which is like Mark likes to tell a story and then throw another story in the middle of the story that he's telling. So he's telling the story of Jairus. This is how it starts. He's telling the story of Jairus, and then he throws in the story of the woman with the issue of, of blood, uh, and then ends in the you know, Mark and Sandwich. And we saw something of this like when we had the Jesus family moment where it's like speaking about one thing and then all of a sudden something else comes in the middle of that and then ends with where the story was going. And these Mark and Sandwiches are in one sense because the surprise story in the middle helps us understand like something bigger about what is going on. But this comes in the end of a passage of Jesus doing a number of things. Jesus quietening the storm, Jesus casting out the demons, Jesus healing uh, a sick person, and then culminating at the end of the series of passages with Jesus raising a girl from the dead. Um, and uh, so I want to tell us just three points this morning, and then hopefully at the end of it, it will stir us about who Jesus is and this movement, this Jesus movement that he is building and this kingdom that he's a part of. So the first thing I want to look at is Jesus' authority. Um, uh, the second thing I want to look at is our need. Um, and then the third thing I want to look at is what we learn about Jesus and his kingdom and how Jesus responds to our need. Uh, so I want to look at those three things and then try and wrap up. And hopefully as we wrap up, um, our hearts will be stirred about who Jesus is. So the first thing is we've said this a number of times in, in both segments of the, the Jesus Movement uh, series as we've been going through Mark, is that the big idea in the book of Mark, the big idea is he essentially twofold, who Jesus is. The book opens with Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus is the Messiah, the, the Son of God. That's how the book of Mark opens. So the big idea throughout the book is Mark is trying to tell us something about Jesus. And he's essentially trying to tell us this, that Jesus is the King. He is the Lord. He is uh, the one, the hope of Israel at that time. He is the hope of the nations. He is the Lord, the Messiah, the promised one, the Son of God. Um, and then the second 
big idea is that the call to us in response to Jesus' lordship is that we would pledge our allegiance in one sense to Jesus. So we would pledge our allegiance that we would give ourselves over to Jesus because of who he is. Now, what these four stories that we've looked at over the last three weeks, two that we're looking at today and the two before, what are they telling us? They're telling us something incredibly key about Jesus. They're telling us that Jesus has all authority in heaven and earth. He has authority over things that people have never seen anyone have authority over before. That is what these stories are trying to tell us. Mark is telling us four distinct stories to show us four areas that they've never seen anyone have authority over before. The first is Jesus has authority over nature. There's a storm. Jesus quietens the storm. By his authority, by his word, the storm goes quiet. They've never seen this before. That's why they terrified on the boats about Jesus. They terrified because they're like, who is this man who even has the authority to speak and all of nature comes in submission to his authority? Mark is saying this, Jesus has authority over creation. Who has authority over creation? The creator. They, I mean, he is showing us Jesus is God, the son of God, the one who, like no one else, has authority over creation. Then you've got a guy who is tied up in a cave, and he's tied up in a cave because he's demon-possessed, and no one can cure him. Like, that's the thing, is that no one can solve this guy's problem. He is a problem, he's a menace to society in one sense. He, he is restrained, no one can solve his problem. What, does, what happens is Jesus arrives on the scene, the demons start speaking to him saying, we are legion, which means we are like 12,000 demons. We are like serious, serious authority in like the spiritual realm and what happens they submit to Jesus they've never seen this before like who is this man that even the legion of demons this person that no one has been able to restrain Jesus speaks and they listen and then you get to these two stories you get this woman with the issue of blood who for 12 years has suffered with this problem, gone to every physician, says suffered at the hands of all the physicians. She's used all her money. She has an incurable disease. The disease submits to Jesus. Jesus is Lord. He has authority over sickness. In an instance in which they have not seen that authority being exercised. Their doctors, their, their you know, rituals, their medicines, however primitive of the day. If you read the Talmud, there were like a number of things that they could try and some of them were just weird. Like some of the, the remedies were like weird, like half a cup of this, half a cup, like some old wives kind of tale, like 
concoction um, that, that she would have tried everything. Nothing worked. But one touch of Jesus and the sickness bows to the authority of Christ. And then, and this is the absolute like kind of high point of these collections of stories is that no one, no one, no one, no one in the history of the world has authority over death. Death is like, what do they say? There's nothing more certain than death and taxes. Like, you know, death is the absolute certainty in life. And yet, Jesus steps into the scene with this girl and she rises from the dead. Jesus has authority over everything. That's what Mark is trying to tell us. Jesus has authority over everything. He is Lord of all. And Mark wants us to know that. He wants us to rest in that. He wants us to trust this Jesus, to know that this Jesus, this Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, is the one who has all authority in heaven and earth. As Jesus himself says at the end of Matthew, he is the one who has all authority. He has authority over creation. He has authority over sickness. He has authority over the spirit spiritual realm. He has authority even over death. That to trust Jesus is to trust the one who has all authority. And um, that, for us, is good news. It's good news because as we are called to pledge our allegiance to Christ, we're not called to pledge our allegiance to an inferior one. We call to pledge our allegiance to the superior one, the one who is Lord over all, who's Lord over our lives, who's Lord over the political situation of the world. And I think all of us can admit that not just South Africa, but the whole world is in like political chaos. And the world has been in political chaos in all moments of kind of human history. He is the Lord over the economic situation of the world. He is Lord over the spiritual situation of the world. He is Lord over sickness and death. So we can trust in him, knowing that the one that we trust in is ultimately the one who has authority over all things. I have often wondered what it must be like being a Christian in Syria, because there's a lot of Christians in Syria, and um, you kind of like look at our situation sometimes, and many people have immigrated, and you, you think like, yo, you know, is it tough here? Imagine being in Syria. Imagine being a Christian in Palestine right now, you know, in the Gaza Strip, and uh, what's going on there? Imagine being a Christian in Ukraine, 
or in all these kind of like war-torn places. And like, how do people um, survive? Like, how does your faith survive in the midst of such incredible, you know, adversity? But what happened? Like, how do Christians live in that? They live knowing that Christ is Lord over all, even the political turmoil, even in the midst of great suffering. Uh, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, he says, we are the people who have great hope. Why? Because the Christ, who is Lord over all, is even the one who has conquered death. So even if we die, we know we, death is not the end. Because as Christ has been raised, so we too will be raised. People live in the midst of incredible pain and incredible suffering, knowing that Christ is Lord over all and he has conquered all things and that even our suffering and our death is not the end because Christ will raise us with him. The book of Mark is, and in these stories that we've been going through, is trying to get us to the point where we trust in the Lordship of Christ. Sometimes I think we find it easy to trust in some areas of the message of the gospel. We, we find it easy maybe to trust that God has forgiven us. And we want to have hope in that because we want eternal life. Or maybe we trust that Jesus is gentle and kind and loving and we've got all those pictures you know that people put on their wall of Jesus Norwegian Jesus with long like blonde hair um, you know like Norwegian Jesus holding a lamb and we're like oh we can trust in Jesus the loving the kind one um, but sometimes I think we find it hard to trust that Jesus is actually Lord the sovereign God whom all things are under the submission of his word. That God could, that Jesus could break in into any moment into the created order and stop the storms. That Jesus could break into any moment and change the spiritual situation. That Jesus could break into any moment and heal any sickness or even raise the dead because he is Lord over all. And uh, this is a whole different sermon. Um, and so we won't get into it. And we won't get into it because this passage doesn't get into it. But often when you think of the Lordship, the question arises, well, why doesn't he? You know, if he can, why doesn't he? And there's a, a whole sermon and sometimes... We have to be grateful that he doesn't because he submits himself to death to break the power of death. So Jesus himself submits to the brokenness of the world to bring about resurrection. But we don't always know why he doesn't break in. And that's not the point that Mark's trying to make. I think well, the point he's trying to make is that we can trust in him because if at any point he chose to break in, everything would submit to him. All things. He just has to speak. Or in the case of the, 
the woman with the issue of blood, she just has to touch Jesus and her sickness submits to his authority. He is Lord over all. Jesus is Lord over all. Lord over South Africa. Lord over our lives. Lord over the situations that we face. Lord over our storms. Lord over our spiritual troubles. Lord over the sicknesses and pains that we feel. Lord over even death, which is good news for us because we can trust in the resurrection of the dead. But the second point is, is what's interesting about this particular passage is you have two people in desperate need. Two people from very different circumstances of life. You've got Jairus, who is a synagogue leader. Uh, some commentators that I've read believe that he is like the chief synagogue leader of the region, um, which means he carries some significant standing in that community. Uh, he probably would have been wealthy. Uh, he, he would have had stature within his community. He may not have been like a Herod or someone or like a high priest with like national significance, but in his community, he would have had significance. He would have had authority. He would have been someone that people knew and respected because he was in charge of that synagogue. And another thing is Jesus would have been kind of like a bit of an intimidating factor for him because here you've got Jesus, the crowds are following him and he's the synagogue leader. You're like, he could have been you know, jealous of Jesus. He could have been like, who is this guy who's rode into town and he's like preaching and he's upsetting the, the kind of religious status quo. He could have seen Jesus as a kind of enemy. But he does something incredible in, in this thing, he finds the incredible humility to come and kneel before Jesus and to, in one sense, beg Jesus to come to his home. What happens? He has great need. And his need has humbled him. His need has humbled him that he finds himself as at this person who probably is a threat to even his own position, he finds himself at this person knowing that Jesus, if he wishes, could bring a solution to his need. Jairus, a significant figure who would not do this for anyone else, finds himself at the feet of Jesus with his need, asking for Jesus' help. And then in the opposite spectrum, you've got a woman who's had an issue of bleeding for 12 years. This would have made her unclean in society. Any sort of bleeding, any sort of bodily discharge would make you unclean in society at that time. So what you know about her is that she probably was an outcast. 
You've got someone who's so central in society and you've got this woman who probably was cast out of the community. She would have been unclean. No one would have been allowed to touch her. She finds herself crawling up to Jesus just to touch the hem of his robe. They both, even though they're from totally different kind of statuses in society, find themselves with a need that they believe Jesus can meet. Jairus, Jesus, if you just come, you can heal my daughter. This woman, if I just touch Jesus, this issue can be resolved. Can be, I can be healed. Both find themselves coming to Jesus because of need. And I find this somewhat challenging because in my like idealistic kind of world, uh, in my idealistic kind of faith, I like to think that we come to Jesus because we love him. You know, we come to Jesus because we like, oh, Jesus is amazing. You know, we love Jesus. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You know, like in my idealism, the reason why we come to Jesus is because we see our great ears, we love him, we follow him just because of that, even if we get nothing in return. And uh, I find these passages quite challenging because that's not why they're coming to Jesus. They're coming to Jesus because they have a desperate need. And in this desperate need, they have a glimmer of hope in which they see Jesus. And they're like, Jesus, no one else can help us in this situation. Perhaps you can. And their need drives them to Jesus. It drives an important figure in that uh, town to bow before Christ. It drives an outcast figure in that town to crawl up to Jesus to touch his robe. Their need pushes them towards Jesus. And I I wonder how many of us, our own story of coming to Jesus is because of need. Because maybe we felt broken through our lives. Um, maybe we, you know, I, I think of how often people come to Jesus because some part of their life is just not right. Maybe it's a, a difficulty they're going through in marriage. Maybe it's a health scare. Maybe some people come to Jesus just because they're in hospital not knowing whether they're going to make another day. And maybe for us, we've come to Jesus for any one of these reasons. Maybe we've just come to Jesus because we're carrying a weight of guilt that we just can't seem to alleviate. What surprises me about Jesus is that he doesn't mind that people come to him with need. He doesn't mind. He's not frustrated by that. Have you ever been like frustrated when someone comes to you and they're begging, and, um, and you're like, you're frustrated. You're like, why, why are you imposing your need on me? Like, I don't need this right now in my own life. Jesus is not frustrated. He's not irritated. He doesn't try and push off people because they have come to him with need. 
It's almost, in, in the case of the woman with the issue of blood, not only does he not get frustrated by it, he praises her for her faith. It's an incredible moment. He stops what he's doing, gives attention to her, and praises her for her great faith. Jesus recognizes that even when we come to him with need, it's an act of faith. That even the smallest fragment of belief that Christ can meet your need is an act of faith that is worth paying attention to. Do you have need? I have needs. I'm sure all of us do. Christ, Jesus is the one who welcomes us, approaching him with need. He welcomes those who are needy, those who have a problem, who have a difficulty, who have a challenge that maybe no one else has been able to meet. Jesus welcomes us approaching him with need. Like I said, in my idealistic world, I kind of think I need to come to Jesus with love, with worship, with adoration, with all of these things. And uh, we try and get our lives together so that, you know, make sure my heart is right, exactly everything's perfect before I come to Jesus. But sometimes I think Jesus just wants us to come to him even if it's just with need. And then, what do we learn about this, about the kingdom? Um, we learn something significant. I, I've been reading a book. It's, a, it's kind of like a crime detective kind of book, um, which I like reading. And in of it, they're telling the story of this, like, religious leader and in this religious leader there's this one interaction that happens at his like gathering he's doing this talk and he he finishes his gathering and he's having a a conversation with the security detail and he's like basically how did that person get so close to me um and they're talking about it oh won't let it happen again you know and 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 often important figures have ways of distancing themselves from people. Whether it's bodyguards, I mean, we see this all the, all the time, you know, like how an important figure will walk around with bodyguards. You see it with like celebrities. They walk out of their hotels when they're getting videoed or that, and they've got like bodyguards protecting them from people, making sure no one touches them, making sure that no one uh, gets through to them or in like how the story tells a religious figure who is like trying to protect their space making sure that some religious fanatic religious follower like keen person doesn't get near them and uh, we often can see like important figures as people who are untouchable who like to keep their distance who don't like to mingle with the the masses but Jesus is different. Not only does Jesus 
allow himself to be touched by the masses. People are pressing around him, it says. But when someone does touch him and he recognizes that a healing has taken place, I mean, how he knows, there's so much of the story that the story doesn't answer. But what's incredible about Jesus is not only does he allow people into his space to push up against him and touch him, but he stops and gives his attention to the woman. This woman who is unclean, who is probably trying to come into the space unrecognized, just touch the hem of of his robe and then be able to move off without anyone stopping and noticing. He stops, notices, pays attention to her and praises her for her faith. It's an incredible act of grace and mercy. They say that you can tell the health of your government of those in authority by how they treat those who are most needy. What we see in these two stories is we see that Jesus treats those who are in need with incredible attention and grace. How often do we try and, like, I don't know if you've like ever thought of this, but like, there's always that one person in the family that is more needy than everyone else. There's always that one person. And they're kind of like the known like outcast of the family in one sense. Outcast is not the right word, but you're kind of like, yo guys, are they coming to the Christmas dinner? Okay, everyone brace yourself, be prepared. Because it's always that like one needy person that you, you're like, oh, we need to prepare ourselves for, we need to. And what's amazing about the kingdom of God is that Jesus shows us how he treats those who are most needy. He gives his attention to, his energy to, his focus to. He changes the course of his movements. He changes the direction of where he was going. He stops to give attention to those who are in need. In uh, Isaiah 58, it talks about fasting and it talks about this is the true fast you know that we would give to those who are in need this is the true fast not that we would just deny ourselves but that our attention would be given to the poor Jesus is constantly oh I mean the Old Testament constantly over and over again emphasizes that a just kingdom, that justice is seen in how uh, society gives attention to those who are most vulnerable and needy. Which is why James says we should look after the widow and the orphan. Those who are most vulnerable and those who are most needy. The justice of a space is seen by how the people give attention to those who have need. Jesus, in these stories, doesn't just show us that he's a king with authority. 
he shows us that he's a king with compassion. He doesn't just show us that he is Lord over all. He shows us that he is a Lord who is accessible by all. He doesn't just show us that he pays attention to those who are significant in society, Jairus. He shows us that he pays attention to those who are seen as insignificant in society, the woman with the issue of blood. What we see is that the kingdom of God is unlike other kingdoms where the kings sit enthroned on their thrones, inaccessible by the masses, inaccessible by those who are need, protected from those who other people don't want to be around. What we learn from this is that this kingdom that Christ is ruler of all is accessible by all, that even those who are regarded as unclean in society are able to touch him and receive from him healing. That is incredible news about this kingdom. Christ is Lord over all, and he has a kingdom unlike all others, a kingdom of grace and mercy, a king who is compassionate and is Lord over all. We often see that power and compassion seem to be incompatible. It just seems like that in society, that those who are compassionate don't have power and those who are powerful don't have compassion. But in Christ, we see these two perfectly aligned, that he is both powerful, Lord over everything, and compassionate, the one who will stop even for the unclean, the untouchables, the ones that no one else wanted to be around. Mark is showing us something about the nature of the kingdom. The nature of the kingdom, that Christ is the king who is Lord over all. And Christ accepts those who come, not just with adoration for him, but those who have need from him. And that Christ is the gracious and compassionate ruler, the one who even gives his full attention to those who have been completely disregarded by everyone else. He not only stops and moves for Jairus, he also stops and is moved by a person that no one would have seen as significant. This is good news about the kingdom and stirring for us to know that Christ is the one who sees you in your need. No matter how you may feel, some of us may feel important and we feel like Christ should give us his attention. And some of us may feel broken and insignificant and struggle with all kind of things and think Jesus would never give his attention to me. 
this story, I think, is to encourage all of us to say that Christ, no matter where we're at and who we think we are, if we come to him with humility as they do, he will give us his, in one sense, undivided attention. The gracious and compassionate king. Um, I was thinking about this, I'll close with this, is, is that often, you know, one of the reasons why we so struggle with people who have need is for two reasons, either because we are proud, you know, and, uh, um, you know, in our pride, we kind of think we deserve what we have, and we think people who are in need are in that position because of their, their own making, and, and because of our pride, we distance ourselves uh, from those who have need. But either that or be just because we are empty often, we feel like we just don't have anything to give. So need makes us uncomfortable. When you're around need, you're like, I just can't seem to solve this problem. I just can't seem to, to do anything to, to solve this. The, 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 the pull of people's need often highlights our own lack. And that own lack makes us feel uncomfortable, so we react badly. That own lack sometimes makes us feel uncomfortable in our own family. You're like, don't you know? I'm just trying to, I'm trying to survive here. Now you need something from me. Like, sort yourself out, because I'm just like treading above water. Um, but the incredible thing about Jesus, the incredible thing about Jesus is that I mean, God himself shows incredible humility that he himself will come into the brokenness of our world, submit himself even to death and death on the cross, as Paul tells us. He comes into our need. He, in his supremacy, is not put off by our neediness and brokenness. And the other incredible thing about Jesus is he's like a river. There is no end to his supply. That our need is never so big that Jesus can't fulfill it. Our need is never so big that Jesus has not conquered all things for it. Your need is not so great that when you come to Jesus, you're going to get that uncomfortable response of like, don't bring that to me. I just don't have what you need right now. When we come to Jesus, he always has what we need. Can I pray?